Today we speak to Surinder and Sophia of Pure Punjabi, a mother and daughter team dedicated to bringing their customers into their North Indian culinary traditions. These lovely ladies have taken a relentless approach to growing their business and give people the knowledge and accessibility of the Indian kitchen while preserving, promoting and teaching the traditional cookery methods of their mothers and grandmothers. They do this through their Indian cookery school, Indian meal kits and spice products, private dining, weddings and corporate events. Yes, these two are very busy women, so hold your horses. Having won several awards and been recognised in some major spaces, these are entrepreneurs with immense drive. We take a glimpse into their life, business, success and relationship as mother and daughter. And we hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did. Hi, ladies. It's really nice to welcome you to It Runs in the Family. And can you start by introducing yourselves, please? Yes. Hi, thank you for having us. So I'm Sarinda. And I'm Sophia. And you are the co-directors? Yes. So I'm the founding director of Pure Punjabi and Sophia is my co-director. Also daughter. Yes. (laughs) um, Just to make that clear. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yeah. So um, we always have to sort of, when we're working, introduce ourselves to other people with our formal titles. But then afterwards, you're like, and this happens to be my mother or my daughter. So, yeah. That's nice that you find that an organic sort of natural thing to do, that you don't feel that you have to pretend to be co-directors first and you don't reference the, the family relationship up front. Um, do you find that people re- respond well to, to when they hear that you're mother-daughter? I think so. I think they like yeah. it, yeah. People do like it for sure. I think, you know, sometimes I'll make reference to um, my business partner and then I always sort of add who's also my daughter. Mm. You know, people I think kind of quite like it. And I think the the actual focus of our business being in food, food is such a personal thing anyway. And food always has connotations of being with family or being with friends. It's such a sociable area of life that naturally it lends itself more to people warming to the fact that Mm. your family maybe than perhaps other industries. Yeah, I can see that. It's a family experience, isn't it? Sitting around the dining table, it sort of fits quite quite naturally. So Sarinda, you founded the company 12 years ago. Can you tell us what drove you to, to, to create it in the first place? Yeah, it was a really simple thing. I had a small speciality and fine food shop and getting different products in, I was given a list of potential suppliers in the area and there was a spice supplier, but it was a lady who'd been on holiday and collected recipes and that was her products. And that's fine, but that sits to me in a different place. You know, if I want to have Thai food, I want the Thai food that Thai people eat and cook and that they've grown up with, not something from a recipe book or a TV that they've learned and done. So I was trying to find some spices to stock. And because I just couldn't find, I searched all across the internet, I searched everywhere to buy products to stock. And I just could not find anything that was properly made by you know, the way I know that we all make it at home by the grandmothers and mothers and the aunties all making, grinding. And it's across the UK. It's in everybody's kitchen if you're from that community, but it's not commercially available. And then I suddenly was thinking, where am I going to find it? And then I just suddenly thought, hang on a minute, that's what I do. So I could could make it and produce it because I'm doing it all the time. I just need to make it commercially available. So I called the local environmental health officer at the, um, it was Wiltshire Council. They were ever so helpful and he came out and it was, because it's not a high risk food, you know, as like dairy or meat or something. I sort of basically told him, look, I've been taught how to make garam masala the proper way, the family way, the old fashioned way, all grinding by hand. What do I need to do to get it bottled and on sale commercially? And he went all through it with me. It's very straightforward. I did my food hygiene, um, roped you in at that stage. You were at university. So I was roped in without knowing I was going to be roped in, which I was completely fine with. So I was living at university. I came back one weekend and I knew that mum was setting the company up formally, doing it, you know, registering everything properly and getting all the paperwork in place at the beginning. So it didn't become a problem later when she was already underway with things. 
So I came back and she said, by the way, I've mm-hmm. set up a limited company and there was a slight slag in that you have to list at least two directors to form a limited company. And I thought out of you and your two brothers, you'd probably mind the least. So if you're a director <laughs> on the company, you don't need to worry about it. You don't have to do anything. But yeah, you're a, you're a company director. So about a week later, I got a letter from the Institute of Directors welcoming me, <laughs> which was very odd at the age of sort of 20, 21. And just it just sort of everything was happening in the background as I was studying at university and I didn't really have to worry about it. But too then much. you helped. We were designing labels, weren't we, for the jars and yeah. you helped. And I was getting you to drop prints and things off at the printers on your way into university. Yeah. I? Yeah. So, yeah, so that's essentially really how it how it started. Just mm. I couldn't find the supplier I wanted, so I became my own supplier. Essentially, that's it. And since then, the business has become, I guess, much more than maybe you imagined right then when you had the uh, environmental health inspector around. You've got various different arms of the business now, don't you? Can you tell us a bit about, you know, where the business is today? Gosh, it's quite wide. It's broad and it's niche, as in we very much specialise in home cooking from the region of Punjab in North India. That's all we specialize in. So it's very, very niche, but across all areas in that niche sector. So we do weddings. We did one on Saturday. Yeah. I've got another one this Saturday. And both of those weddings, one person within the couple is Indian and one person is non-Indian. So because of the fact that we have our heritage but we've lived in the UK all our lives when there's a sort of cross-cultural marriage that really appeals to people so yeah so we tend to be you know the, mm. what they're looking for because they're looking for authentic home-cooked Indian food but equally it needs to translate across to the British side of the family mm. and translate across to the Indian side of the family and because I was born here you know I sit very comfortably in the two worlds and um, Sophia is half English and half Punjabi, but raised only in the Punjabi family. So she sits very comfortably in both worlds. So it's kind of that's quite good for us to be able to go across the two. It's um, a delicate thing to navigate going from one culture to another mm-hmm. and making everybody feel comfortable. So but our, our growth from the starting point to now has happened very organically and it has been really customer led and we have multiple arms to the business, but each one just sort of added gradually one stage at a time. So we started with the products for mum's shop, which led to doing farmer's markets at the weekend. And from there, that led to cooking at farmer's markets. Yeah, it did. I mean, we our tagline is learn, cook, eat. And it's mm-hmm. basically the three broad areas, which will be the cookery school, then it will be events, and events could cover pop-up restaurants, it can cover private dining, it would be corporate, anything sort of like that. And the other side then would be products and markets. Well, we don't do that anymore, but it would be the product and the online meal kits that we have. So it's broadly products, services, and then the, the workshops and the, the teaching mm. and the cookery school. So I think it's, you know, people can learn they want to learn or they can have us cook for them at their own events and they can actually then also get our meal kits and cook themselves and do their own dinners from Mm. the meal kits. Starting and growing a business is no mean feat, especially in a market as busy as food. Taking their niche and making it a success is perhaps testament to Sarinda and Sophia's ability to move with the demands of their customers and trends while not forgetting tradition. The agility, something we often see in family firms, is prevalent in this story. We've always engaged really heavily with our customers. So every time they suggested something that we didn't offer, you know, at the farmer's markets, we had our biggest one of the year and there was a turning point where I had graduated. I'd left my job in London. And as an experiment, it was sort of like, let's see if this will really work. So our biggest event of the year that we normally did as mum's shop, we did only as pure Punjabi. And it was the first time we ever broke taking four figures on one day. And we had some friends that were amazing that we'd had like a last minute blip with this event as life usually does to you. You have something really big and then at the final hour, everything goes to pot. So these two friends stayed up with us till like one in the morning or something crazy like that. No, this is for 
first time we did cuckoo for. Oh, right. And um, then we were all up again at like four thirty, five o'clock in the morning for setup, and they stayed with us the whole day. So we had this post mortem on the Sunday, and we sort of said, you know, we need to find another event where we, you know, make really good money like this, so that we can continue to grow this. And the husband said, I have a client, and he works in food as well. He works at very big um, fisheries. And he said, they've just started doing pop-up restaurants. And at the time, this concept was incredibly new. Now everybody knows the term pop-up, but mm. back then no one had heard of it. Or, or it was very London. Yes, very London. I think there was one that had happened in Paris, one that had happened in New York. And he said to us, our friend, I have this client started doing pop-up restaurants you should think about this because I know they're going well because his orders are bigger every time he places Mm. one so he arranged for us to to talk to this guy that was doing them gave us a bit of advice and we set the date and gave ourselves three weeks and we sold out at that event people said we've never seen Mm -hmm. anybody cooking like this would you teach yeah, and we, we had no intention. Not? We had no intention of doing a cookery school. Yeah, we were really surprised, you know, uh, when people asked us, "Would you teach?" And we thought, "Well, why would you want to learn?" Mm. <laughs> uh, not even realizing <laughs> it's one of the biggest things. People just love doing cookery classes and courses and workshops, and I mean, it really did grow, didn't it? It did, and I think what's actually really important to stress is now food and people knowing. The names behind brands is a very big part of most companies' cultures and even the big corporates are trying to come across as softer. When we were starting, this is like 10 years ago now, none of this was kind of cool no, or in fashion. No, not so much. So when all. we first started, we thought, right, we need, we'll, we'll teach, we'll happily teach. It seems strange, but someone's asked for it, so we'll try it. And our kitchen at the time was quite big and had a, a big island in the middle. And the whole premise of what we do is the grandmother's cooking. It's how you really learn to cook at home. So we thought like, oh, where can we hire? Mm -hmm. You know, that we know is going to be available for every date that we need. And we were still running mom's shop at the time. So the only day we could do was a Sunday because that was the only day it was closed. And then I think mom turned around and went, what are we doing? Why are we looking for another place when we have a kitchen here that's big enough to bring in a small group of people? When our wider family comes, when mums, aunt and cousins come and we have family parties and you all cook together, we're all around that central island. There's plenty of space for sort of six, eight women. And we know it's always there. We know it's always available. So Mm. we started teaching from our home and everybody at the time was like, oh, these two little (laughs) women. (laughs) How cute, doing their thing from home, bless them, it'll never work. And then about a year later, you know, we saw big TV chefs, one in particular, and obviously, you know, it won't have been them personally, but someone within their team had literally copied and pasted our entire workshop page and just changed the names to their own names because they could see how people were connecting with the, with what we were doing. And you can, you when someone... When you start to see your things being copied, yeah. then you know, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. But super cheeky, super cheeky. Yeah. yeah, it is. And it was literally was almost identical. I'm sure it wasn't this the chef themselves that had done it because no. they are around it. But it would have been somebody on their team researching and just out of laziness probably just copy paste highlight the whole thing mm. just change the relevant details. But it was it was the same the same format, the same offering, yeah. everything. So, yeah. Yeah. And so we've, we've had that along the way. But what is interesting is people that have sort of copied us or come to us for advice to start their own thing. Um, they've given it a go. And actually, it's not that easy. It's one of those things that looks quite easy, but you have to be consistently on it. And the reason we started in our own home is we we actually mean for that to be the best place. And we've actually just moved because it got to the point where we had so many so like the demand for workshops was so high that it was just impacting on our family life. Both my brothers, you know, if they wanted a sandwich or to have a <laughs> cup of tea, yeah, they difficult. couldn't come in the ki- the kitchen. We have a little dog who adores everyone. Every time someone comes in the house, he thinks they've come for them. But, you know, it's still a business. He's not allowed to be there when workshops are happening. So it's quite stressful for him in his own house to be sort of 
cooped away. So we've we've recently moved to expand, but we still teach from our home because what we're offering, it doesn't make sense to go into like a stainless steel corporate space and, you know, it's great having some cookery experiences where you have all these fancy gadgets, but actually that doesn't translate to everyday cooking when you get home from work and, you know, you've got to get a, a tasty, nutritious meal on the table. I'm always really jealous of people who have food businesses because as you were saying earlier, food is such a community product. And I think it really plays well to the family business side of things and the community you create. You know, Every business can create a community if they want, but it's very different with food because it's just a, it kind of an innate human thing to come together over a meal. Yeah. And Safia, so you've clearly you guys work so brilliantly as a team, but Safia, what was it that led you to joining the business kind of officially after you finished university? So I graduated from university and then I worked in London for about a year and I uh, left the company that I was working for and I worked in the event space and I had uh, done a job interview and been offered a job somewhere that was a little bit closer to where we were living at the time but I'd already given in my notice and left my previous job and as I was about to accept the new job offer they started placing conditions on where I had to live. And it wasn't like a relocation package. It was just like, you have to move to the town and you have to do this and you have to do that. And I'm I'm not shy of hard work, but I just had a really bad feeling because you can't really start telling someone where they have to live. You know, unless the job is abroad, then obviously you can understand that. But it was like 45 minutes in the car and they were saying that I had to move if I wanted to take it. And I just had a bad feeling. I thought if you think you can tell me where I where I should be living before I've taken the job, what are you going to tell me that I have to do once I've taken the job that actually bears no relevance to my ability to carry out the job? Very happy, you know, to like work long hours and make all the sacrifices but I just felt that was a step too far and it was a really rural location with no young people nothing there I would have maybe thought twice if it were like a big city but Mm. it I literally would have been going to work and then sitting on my own not meeting anyone because it was just fields and nothing so I sort of said to you oh that's fine I'd be why don't we get you somewhere and Mm and all the rest of it and Sophia just said no I just got a bad feeling about Mm. this I said did they not mention it in the interview she said no nothing and now all of a sudden it was on the condition on the letter of offer Mm. and I said what are you going to do then because you've already left the other job and now you're not going to take this and I said I think I said to you no child of mine can be unemployed (laughs) so I think I then said to you, why don't you just... Yeah, I was already listed as a director. I, yeah, well, we'd already... Yeah. We had, a, at this type stage, we had the garam masala and then I'd done the tandoori masala. But because I was so busy, because I was doing other things as well, I didn't have time to go to get all the lab testing done for the tandoori masala. Because if you once you start using fresh garlic, fresh ginger, fresh chilli, all of those things, which is how you should do it properly you obviously need to get the lab testing done and it was sort of quite a lot that's involved with it. So what I had done, I had made the tandoori masala, but I had actually used a powdered garlic and powdered ginger, which isn't really the right way to do it, but I needed another product and I wanted another product in the shop. So partly when Sophia was suddenly, you know, in between these, where was she going to work? I sort of said to her, why don't you take these two products, the garam masala and the tandoori? I said, put the tandoori masala back. I, I pushed for that quite hard. Though. You I did. You, weren't, hard you hard. were You were like not worried about it. I was like, no, if we're going to do this, <laughs> I'm going to do it the old school I think way. I said I haven't got time yeah. to, to get to do all this. And so she said, no, that's fine. She'll do mm-hmm. it. So essentially that, that ended up how you got in and it. And we kind of set a year's deadline on it. So it was like if, oh, you yeah. know, let's – I think mum said his, you know, we'll do £5,000 loan which was mum's loan you know as like a startup loan you like food let's add events an events dimension if it doesn't work after a year go and get a job and you know nothing's been lost you're young you don't have a house or children or any of the major kind of burdens that stop people and if it does work then great so what was really funny is we sort of didn't plan for it to work we had obviously the plan of what was going to happen if it didn't work, but we didn't really plan what would happen if it, it worked. And within the first year, the Tandoori Masala product was switched to fresh, lab tested, entered to the Great Taste Award at Monogold Star. We 
had launched the events and pop-up restaurants that were just selling out immediately. I was a finalist for the uh, Enterprising Wiltshire Awards in the Young Entrepreneur category. And so it just suddenly was just gaining momentum. We would be interviewed for different things. And mum was quite keen for it to be like, you know, this is a little bit more your thing. Why don't you go and do the interviews? And what's very interesting and touching back on what we said earlier about now, everybody really wants to know the people behind brands. But then that wasn't the case. But when it came to interviews, they were always like, no, we want both of you because it's highly unusual for a mother and daughter to work together. For us, culturally, it doesn't seem as odd to maybe how other people see it. But people have always been fascinated with the fact that we're family members and we work together. They just it baffles them completely. So I suppose like I suppose like both of you. Yeah. People must think, how did that happen? <laughs> well, that was going to be my next question. Did it feel like a big shift? Did it feel like a big commitment to then work with each other? Did that change anything in your relationship? How was that kind of year or so and and afterwards from thinking, oh, let's just give it a go? How did that make things change or not change? She was living at home. So I think there was an adjustment period where you realise you have to be in a different, like a work frame of mind rather than off your off frame of mind. But it sort of works. I think we're both hesitating because we ha- I don't think we overly overthink that part of things. Also, we naturally have a very easy division of which parts of the work we both look after. We're not both fighting to do the same thing, which I think naturally really, really helps. At, but equally, whichever side one of us covers the other one doesn't do it, but if we had to, we could jump and completely swap over and it would be fine. So I think we just did a day at a time almost. Yeah. Uh, not not in a way that we weren't planning or thinking. We, you know, we had strategy and we had, we just sort of in a way have a business plan, but in regards to like working together, you just kind of, I suppose, as you, you probably both do, you get up and you get on. We talk about this quite a lot with our guests, that it's very difficult to really put into words the transition and because it becomes such a natural integrated situation that your home relationship, your work relationship, you're all working for the same ends and the same objectives. You've both got the best interest of the business at heart. And I always look at the as at the business as almost like another family member in its own right and that we're there to care for it and it cares for us. And it's very difficult sometimes to completely decompartmentalize the boxes, as it were. It all mulches into one. So I think your thinking around that is absolutely natural and it's what we mm. hear. And and you can over-engineer these things, but it, it needs to be organic and fluid, doesn't it? So does it affect your relationship as mother-daughter? And do you do anything when the day is busy? Do you do anything to try and keep that element and that relationship front and centre? I think I, I think it goes hand in hand. I don't think I ever think in a mode where, say, we'd be working and I would think in terms of she's not my daughter because she, she is. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to think of different scenarios of whether – because obviously pre-pandemic life was a bit different and we had projects in different regions and different countries and then you're managing your working relationship differently. But we talked to, even if we, you know, say, you know, mum's gone away to see friends for the week, we'd still talk every day or send each other a quick message. So we don't overthink it, I think, is the main thing. And I also think as well, which is probably something you can both relate to anyway, is not everybody would be able to work with every single one of their family members. And I Mm. think for both of us, we wouldn't be able to work with every single one of our family members. So if you feel that you can start that in the first place, then that's a different thing, isn't it? Then you just go forward and then it just happens. What I think might be a key thing as well, and probably is the same with, with you both, and I think this might be, I think neither of us is jockeying for position. Mm. I think that's quite a key thing with both of us. Yeah. We're not particularly looking to be the alpha in a way, although kind of I am. <laughs> I'm always called right. <laughs> and I accept it. <laughs> but oh 
only in the sense that say say we were siblings, I think it would it would still be exactly the same. Neither of us is trying to be the dominant one particularly in anything. Yeah. I only make that joke about pulling around because just from just from age and experience, you know, if you just have got that that age difference, which you'll always have. Yeah. You know, so I mean when somebody's got, you know, thirty years extra life on somebody else, then that's yeah. just that's part of it, isn't it? So you're always gonna refer to somebody in the sense that, you know, if Sophia were thirty years older than me, it would be the same dynamic. I would at some points know that she's going to know more than I know purely from age and having done so many different things. So I think that, but I do think the key thing is not to try to be the alpha one all the time. And also we tend to sort of, as Sophia said, we tend to have our defined roles, Yeah. but I think also we can cover each other's back at mm. most points. So normally I don't work weddings and you do, yeah. but this one on Saturday, you know. Staffing is still badly affected yeah. from the pandemic. It's still really and hard I, to recruit. So. I knew that, didn't I? And I yeah. said, do you want me to, to come on this one? And to be honest, once we were there at the event, probably didn't need mine. No. <laughs> but you don't know that till you're there. <laughs> so. no. But I knew I could sort of see how she was doing things. I could see she was worried. Yeah. And so that I, I picked up and then I said, do you want me to come? And I think I'd said it before you said, I need you to come. I think, did I yeah. say, do you want yeah, me you to did, come? Because yeah. then it would have got to a point, maybe if I hadn't said that, she would have then said to me, I need you to come with me. So I think there's that kind of element of it. But I definitely think covering each other's back. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you may get the sense that managing the work, life, family, colleague, relationship is very much in the grey. Retaining your individuality and personal ambitions within the close-knit family environment is important. And this is something that Sophia and Sarinda have managed really interestingly. And also we do we do both do things that are related to our work life, that support our work life, but are independent from each other. So I occasionally freelance and I, I started doing that about three years after we started working together mainly because I was quite young. I was like 22, 23 when we started working together. So when I got to 25, 26, and we were just working from home, and this is a concept that now people really understand, but for years people were just mystified as to why I did this. I wasn't mixing with anybody my age, mm. and I was only seeing my family members, and our clients are usually, you know, mum's age if not my grandparents age I just wasn't mixing with anybody young and actually I didn't do very well with sitting behind a computer desk talking to clients or managing teams that were maybe like 10 years younger than me or five years younger than me and you're not you you're just mentally in a different place and it wasn't that good so I moved to London would do laptop work in the day and then I would freelance front of house in the evening and I still do that now for different brands because it actually really adds to what we do. And it's almost like continued professional development. I get headspace away from what we're doing, but it's actually giving you ideas. You're seeing what's happening in other places. And mum always, you know, takes part in different kind of business support groups and webinars and award ceremonies. Mum's going to be a judge on a county panel soon. Somerset, BBC Somerset Awards. I can't remember what it is. Yeah, but there's, we do separate things and we don't stop each other from doing that. And I think that's actually quite an important thing as well. Mm. I think that's a really interesting, like a side hustle activity that, that clearly is not threatening mum or threatening the business. It, it feels perfectly comfortable i think if i was to say i was going to go and do freelance pr I you'd be it, a bit threatened I, it, well, no, I don't know. I think it's really interesting but then what sophia's doing is aligned but non-conflicting yeah. yeah and actually bringing back in to the family business all the learnings of what she could see elsewhere I, yeah. I think it's a really interesting idea and we've not heard about this before but i think for you to acknowledge your age and the fact that you need to have that peer experience to be a fully rounded professional that you found a way of adding that in to your working week, which I can imagine makes it extremely busy and tiring. I think the maturity jump is something that we de- we haven't really talked about on this podcast before, but when you join a family business, I joined a few weeks after I turned 18, kind of wasn't meant to stay forever, but I have. And um, I remember thinking, 
about a year in, my interest, the stuff I like talking about was everything that my colleagues in the office who were 25 plus like talking about. So that and it, I think even if I, they hadn't been that age, when you feel a responsibility in a business, naturally that matures you at a different rate than if you were going, you know, still if I was at uni, for example. So having your own methods of retaining, I mean, my method was much less healthy. I just went out drinking on a Friday night. But you didn't go mad though. <laughs> no, I, mean, I didn't. Thank goodness you didn't. It wasn't a crazy no, but, moment, but you needed that. Yeah, you need to have your, outlet. exactly. You need to have your normal. And I think that is probably where a lot of people talk about joining their family business. Their, their friends don't get it. And I think that's possibly an element of that as well. They won't understand the responsibility that you carry, whether your parents say it's there or not. It, you will always feel it. You will always feel it because you're, you feel like a business owner and you can't change that. So I think that's a really interesting mm. lesson to take away from, yeah. from your journey. Before even you joined, and even, I've always done separate things. Mm. And I, for about 20 years, was a private personal trainer and life coach in addition to having the shop and other things. So I've always done multiple things. I've never been able to just do one thing. And I think that even when we were getting in with Pure Punjabi, it was only mm. only probably last year that I finally, you know, gradually tailed out of the coaching and training work that I was doing. So all along, I've also had a separate and independent business going on. Yeah. And I think Sophia seeing that, you know, I encouraged mm. you when you went to London. I said, you know, find something yeah. else because you can still work from the laptop and we'll come together when we have events and we'll come together when we have workshops yeah. and then go off and do that and it's worked really really well because I, I think yeah. you need to have your own thing you do and I think the only reason I probably still continue it now I hardly do any I only do one or two a year of a big events is I I happened I don't know whether it's luck or you kind of make your own luck don't you you kind of you put the work in you do the research you 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 know make the time to put yourself in the best places and I think my third job I was on, I was in Buckingham Palace. Oh, wow. Most people, and I suppose as well, it's the way you look at it. I could have gone on to those jobs and I could have had the attitude of, I'm a company director. I'm not going to hold someone's coffee tray and clear their empty glasses. But to me, I was like, I've got no responsibility. If I want to laugh for two minutes and make a joke with someone, I will. And actually, I look after the kitchen and kind of more of the chef side within our business. When you're front of house, which is kind of waiting staff and floor managers, you're seeing where the guests are and also where the guests don't see. So you see more of an event when you are front of house than you do when you're in the kitchen. Mm. Even though the kitchen positions may be seen as more important in the grand scheme of things, actually, you can learn a heck of a lot more. So I took that view to my work, which then meant because I went with a good attitude and I just tried my hardest and I didn't go thinking I'm too important or I'm too big for this, I got put on the really big jobs with the really big clients and it just sort of snowballed. And then for us, it was really good because when we would do our events and I'd come back from you know a really impressive venue with amazing clients or I don't know how they had like a big performer or something it was really good for us as a benchmark to check and see what was happening you know they've got unlimited budgets all the latest products and everything that was coming out so I chose to take that view towards it and perhaps if I'd gone with a bit of an attitude of like oh I you know this is a bit I'm taking a step back rather than looking at all the positives. I don't know that it would have snowballed the way that it did. And now I work with a, a big brand and I look after their hospitality stuff for them when they have really big clients coming, you know, all the boards or big celebrity ambassadors and things. And I love doing it because, again, it's just that great industry check. And I don't do that many of them, but it is still really important to have that separately. Um, that is a struggle. That is a struggle because mm -hmm. I have to either make sure that we have no events running yeah or I have to reshuffle and cancel events so we try and get it worked in but it it's actually very difficult mm. but equally I think it's more important than having to rearrange the diary and we try and sort of plan it a bit now don't we and you're, yeah. you're going to go away for another event for five days so I've yeah. got that in the calendar knowing that we're going to struggle over that this is the teamwork that comes with a family business isn't it it's you know it's this is the off the business books kind of thing that you might plan as a standard business this is okay the thing I know that's best for my daughter comes first and yeah. then therefore how are we going to manage the situation together yeah I think it's more about personal growth 
Yeah. And sort of self-development and change is as good as a rest, isn't it? So I think it's just a, the new scenery, new environment. I think all these things are good. So I think that's it's more about that. But I think what's been interesting is like with another one coming up now, I think in two weeks' time where yeah, you'll go. that's in France. So I'm already sort of trying to plan how we'll get around that and what we'll do. So kind of keeps your – you need to keep on your toes a little bit as well. And I think it's maybe a mistake to always think that other person will be there. So I think it's probably a good idea in some ways to actually have to do some days where actually that other person isn't there because, you know, that might be a possibility one day. So you have to, I think you have to be able to adapt at that time. So with over 10 years under their belt, unwavering ambition, hard work and dedication, what does the future look like for pure Punjabi, Sarinda, Sophia and maybe other family members too? We purchased this, um, well, I've bought this country in, in South Somerset. So now that's a whole separate business that was pretty much not, you know, it was very, very, very poor trading. Um, it was virtually going to be closed, I think. And so when I went in and saw this place, you know, we were on a mission to find a new home for Pure Punjabi that would have a big commercial kitchen so that we could do the meal kit production and scale that up because that taught us a lesson in COVID. Mm. With that huge growth in sales, we really struggled. And we didn't just physically didn't have enough space. No, we didn't have, we had a production room, but we just needed, you know, we needed a commercial production Mm. for the meal kits. Still doing it our old fashioned method, but we needed that space and that room. And then in addition to that, we needed, we wanted to look at, Somewhere where people coming to our workshops, you know, they'll travel from quite far because our workshops are quite unique. Mm. And we would be finding places for them to stay overnight. or And then they'd come to the local area and they'd stay for three days, five days. So then they were eating out somewhere and, you know, bringing a whole kind of business, I suppose, to the area. In a sort of a form of tourism, I suppose, and then doing our workshop. So long story short, we got directed by the agent to come and look at this as a venue for bringing our weddings in-house as somewhere for our commercial kitchen and meal kit production and as somewhere for our workshops to be held with our customers able to stay overnight in the ensuite letting rooms. So we've got four in addition to having, you know, another room that I use. And then also there's a two bed flat that Sophia and her brother share. So it had all of those things, but this restaurant and the bar were literally on their knees Mm. and I said to Sophia, what a shame, because we really, our whole thing is heritage and preserving the heritage and the the cuisine and the culture of North Indian cookery as it was done by the first generation of immigrants in the 50s and 60s. So as my mother cooked, how she taught me and how I taught Mm -hmm. Sophia and my sons. And so a British pub, you know, is something that is struggling now because times have moved on. People don't go to the pub every night you know, and drink is affordable at home and cinema has gone and people watch Netflix and, you know, and Amazon Prime and all of that. So essentially most people now have got their pub and their cinema in their homes. It's all very comfortable. So they're not likely to go out as much. Mm. But I still think it's such a shame to lose something like a British pub because they're, they're just so lovely. So I said to Sophia, why don't we just see if we can, with the support of Pure Punjabi, see if we can keep this pub open it's not viable to open it seven days a week especially as we are, we are i'm funding it and it's being supported in addition by pure punjabi but it was originally meant to be a site for just for pure punjabi mm. so anyway we didn't we we carried on so we now operate as the crown and victoria inn which has the restaurant and we are struggling to find staff we were struggling really to find a cook and a chef really. but the bar is open and locals can now have somewhere they want to come and have a drink on a Thursday, Friday and Saturday night, which are the key nights. We can try and put on food when we can, but we can't it's manage it with running Pure Punjabi events. Amazing. And do your sons show an interest in the business at all or have they got a very different pathway? Well, now that you mentioned my son, so my, my older son, he has his own career going. He, he did construction and business um Construction and business management. business management, wasn't it? Yeah. So, you know, he works for a, an international firm and he he's busy and got his own thing going on. Mm. Uh, he was very, very supportive in the early years, did an awful lot of the 
the kind of backup work that we needed to be done, loading, unloading, all that kind of both of my sons did. But interestingly, when I was buying the Crown in Victoria, my younger son worked, uh, he was working doing sort of SEO keyword research for a firm mm. and he switched from sales into that job. And I think he'd only been doing it about three months and I could see he wasn't really enjoying it. And he was working from home, obviously, because that was all through the pandemic. So when we came close to buying Crown and Victoria in, I and I knew then I'd said to Sophia, let's try and keep it going. And Yorkshire, so it, interestingly enough now, she works for me as Crown and Victoria, <laughs> but we're business partners as Pure Punjabi. Yeah. So that's even more complicated because we have to remember <laughs> the dynamics different. The dynamics slightly different, as in the Crown and Victoria is mine. Um, and she heads up kitchen, but you know, it's, it's really difficult. But I said to my youngest son, Aaron, um, look, you're not really, I can see you don't really like this job. And I think he had like sort of, like, he got to his three month review with them and they sort of said to him, you're not really happy here, are you? And he's like, no. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I said, why don't you come and work for me and head up the bar and look after the grounds because it's got we've got quite a lot of grounds about an acre and a half of the plot so, so yeah there's a lot to look after yeah. um and I said to him look I'll match your salary and give me a year and he now works for me so oh brilliant yeah and it's going full circle you've, you've yes. given him that year but we'll have to check in with you in a couple of years time and see whether history has repeated itself hopefully hopefully yeah. he'll stay because um and I think he's enjoying it because the, the thing when you when you do work as self-employed or it's your family business is I don't think you take advantage because you have that responsibility you know that you know you don't want to let your parent down or your you know your family down but equally you know you have that flexibility where he might decide that you know perhaps he wants to go and get some bar supplies at whatever time he feels like he wants to do it and he can sort of manage his day and I know the work will get done so I don't you know once he's got in the rhythm of the job really I don't really have to worry too much about you know has uh, has the lawn been cut because he will look and monitor that does it need doing or not he might sort of have a word with me more so now as we're three months in that actually he's just getting on with it so it's actually working really well. Mm, yeah. Really, really well. Brilliant. And just before we move to kind of the final section of the interview, I'm desperate to know, you know, cooking and creating together, you must have made some brilliant memories along the way. Do you each have one that kind of stands out as one of your favorites? Maybe a hairy moment, a scary moment, a funny moment. I'd love to know kind of your favorite memories. We've had a lot of laughing to the point of crying on long drives back. Yeah from different shows and events. You know when yeah. you're just so tired? You're just so tired. Yeah. Somebody says something funny or something funny happened. Yeah. And then you just end up just mm. literally laughing and crying. We've we've done so many different shows yeah. where um, there's, there's been a pressure on. I mean, we did one show where they locked everybody in when they, we, we were trying to leave. Do you remember? Oh yeah, it, that was really bad. That, uh, yeah. It was a massive show, and it was when well we, known, a really, really well known show, very, very big name show, and the organisers were terrible, and they treated the traders terribly. And the weather, we had, we had actual summer weather in summer, which obviously we don't always get. So it was about thirty-five degrees between thirty and thirty-five degrees on each one of these days of the show, and it was like three or four days long, and. Um, yeah, that every night they like locked you in and we couldn't get out. It took us an hour and a half to leave site the first night and we bumped into some security guards, like one guy, and he was like, I'm not too sure. I think you can come this way. And we, he walked up to another security guard and he called his name. He said, hey, I've got a question. And before the guy let the man that was with us continue speaking, he said, if I don't get a break in a minute, I'm walking out. And it was like boiling hot. So across the whole site, everybody was being treated really badly. On the final day, I we had a sack trolley with us <laughs> and um, the organisers hadn't given the breakdown information to everyone. So they actually were supposed to do that on the penultimate day to say, on the last day, you can bring your car in behind where your pitch is in the morning. So it came to about 
4.35 o'clock on the final day and this lady sort of walked through flapping this piece of paper around and about an hour before I'd had a really dangerous situation happen saying, did you get the breakdown information? And mom just absolutely <laughs> launched at her, which she thoroughly deserved. I, for two hours prior in open weather, had been on a sack trolley trying to transport as much stock as we could manage over, it was like a 15 minute walk to the car and a 15 minute walk back. On one of the journeys, the sack trolley broke in the middle of the road. And this event, there's like a lot of cars and things there. So there was someone, the trolley broke and it like fell on my leg. So the whole of my leg, I had a massive like black bruise on there. There were six security guards, three on either side of the road. They all watched me collapse in the middle of the road. Mm -hmm. And this, they lifted a barrier up and there was a sports car and he revved and he was about to run me over. And two members of the public scooped me, my stock and my sack trolley out (laughs) of the road. And they were looking at the security guards like, why are you not helping? And it was because they were all so sick of how they'd been treated. So when I came back to the store, I think I burst into tears because Mm -hmm. I was just dehydrated hadn't eaten and was just like in shock and um mum said this stupid woman's come around with this piece of paper that we should have had 24 hours ago go and try and bring the car around so I tried to go up the track and there was this really nice again security guard at the end of the thing he's like I'm really sorry I'm not allowed to let you through because there's people on site so I I used one of the things that women are allowed to use in exceptional circumstances I cried on cue to get what I wanted and it worked I cried (laughs) and I said I was like I've had a terrible day and this has happened but it was true but it it was true I wouldn't have cried but I just knew do you know what if I cry he's gonna let me through and I so think I probably cried. Got, you close on that on the verge of that anyway because it was yeah, so bad. It was really, really bad. And he said, "You know what? I can see in how you're talking that this isn't you, and this te- day has just been terrible." He said, "I two hours ago had to take one of my staff members to A and E because they hadn't had a drop of water for eighteen hours, and they're now being treated for severe dehydration. I'm going to let you through. This is a massive show. Every person walk- working across the site was just treated terribly." Um, and so he let me through and I got my car out the back of the thing. And then- But then after that, the, the, the organisers, so it's always an independent um, like event organisation mm. that do it. So it's not the actual show itself, but they were, they were organising mm. the show. So they, they made a decision and they were run by a lot of youngsters who were sort of doing the walkie-talkie mic thing with each other. And I think just lack of experience, mm. and I think they had a very high turnover mm. of staff this sort of uh, brand agency. So they ended up with lots of different new people who sort of would come in and it was a little bit like the Bridget Jones series where, you know, the new people come in and run the TV show. So it was all a bit, you know, yep, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And you'd be watching them thinking, oh, no. They'd never done the job they were managing. So I think you're always just by default, they're not going to, you're going to miss stuff. But one of them had this bright idea, let's close, lock in all the traders and hold them in a holding pen for another hour. This was at, seven, at the end. Seven they o'clock. decided that they, so they announced this at something right at the end on the last of the three or four days of blistering heat. Mm. And Sevilla had managed to get the car in by the, the guy feeling sorry for her and letting her bring it round. Yeah. So we'd loaded up. And as we went to drive out, they, they were flagging us down and they had penned up everybody in their trucks and vans and all sorts of things. And as they flagged me down, I opened my window and I just said to them, stop me if you can, but I'm going. <laughs> and they just sort of... They weren't expecting They didn't it. know really what to didn't do. Didn't know what I, to do. <laughs> no, I said, you stop me if you can. I said, because unless you're the police or you have some authority to hold me, I said, I'm going. Yeah. And we got to the bar, and then she sort of quick walkie-talkie through the security and she said you, 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 and she didn't know what to do yeah. and then I drove past I just carried on driving mm. and you know I was driving at five miles an hour because you know it's you're in the fields and all the rest of it so she was walking along beside me trying to sort of say but 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 <laughs> but, but, but you know because no one had said to her no yeah and then that I watched the whole lineup of all the other postal holders and traders all watching me as I just mm. drove past and I got to the gate and I said, I'm opening that gate or you are opening that gate. Yeah. 
And they, she, op- they she opened capitulated. The- yeah, they opened the gate and <laughs> out we drove onto a clear road and off we went. There was no reason. Like no, the brilliant. whole thing had been all messed up. No, I mean, that I'll sounds never- terrible. And uh, actually, yeah. do you know what makes me laugh? Obviously, when mum said you can't stop me, I think they'd never encountered the um, firmness of a Punjabi parent, which <laughs> any Punjabi child will know when your Punjabi parent tells you no, you do it. Yeah, <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, that was <laughs> a memory that stands out for, uh, for maybe not so good reasons. But we were laughing hysterically in the car on the way home. So this is what Sarinda and Sophia had to say to our three quick fire questions. So we'll kick in with the first one. What's your earliest memory of the family business and working together? One of my earliest memories is I think when mum decided that she was going to make the product to stock herself in her shop, I remember her coming back from a visit to a graphic designer and print house and she was explaining how she wanted the look of the labels and she came back with the proofs and she said, this woman has just got it. It's like she just, everything I said, she just understood and mum had these labels. They looked beautiful and she was just really happy and it was. Just, I just remember everything happened very quickly. That's probably my earliest memory. Brilliant. And Sarinda? Yeah, I think earliest memory of us working together, first memories, I think would be probably be around that same period of time. And I think it would probably be the labels because Sophia was still at university, but she was trying to collaborate with me and help me and looking at the labels, you know, because you want feedback sometimes, don't you? You just want a sounding board. So I think probably that kind of our initial discussions together on, you know, these are my ideas. What do you think? Have a look. This, you know, like showing her the proofs. You know, I'm definitely earliest remember asking her because she had to drive into the University of Southampton and she would go via the printers. And I always remember that, you know, I would always be saying, oh, can you stop off and drop off this or give pick up this sample mm. or whatever? So I think it's around the same thing, actually, the same earliest memories yeah. of getting that going. And what would you do differently next time if you could hit reset? Is there anything you would change? I don't know what mum's answer would be. Mine, you can always think yes, but how business is now is not the same as it was when we started. So you're not working in the same business environment that you were as you went along. If we started now, yes, I would do things differently, not because I necessarily think either of us regret any of the steps that we've taken, but actually it's not the same business landscape that it was Mm. when we started. It's totally different. But I don't know that I for for me I don't know if mum's answer would be different I I wouldn't say we'd change anything from a regret perspective we would we would have a different strategy because it's a, a different environment now but what do you think I don't think same same things the things I would in hindsight do or that I would look at what we have changed now have been because of changes in technology mm. changes in our learning uh changes in what's happened in the world the information you can get now for business is unbelievable. But when I was doing Google searches, you know, 10, 12 years ago, you couldn't get half the information. You can just get everything now. It's been a real change. So I don't think I have any regrets because I think that everything we did at that time. That was the maximum we could do. Was the maximum we could do, I think. And I think even to the extent that actually did save us in COVID was this database of customers we have. One of the key things we did from the very beginning at, Every show we ever did, and even in my shop, was we collected emails. Mm. From the very beginning, we asked people to sign up and we collected emails. Would you like to hear? And we, we made sure that we had digital contact with a newsletter from the beginning. And we made sure that we emailed everybody with information mm. so that we always had that. So that when we then needed that, as soon as COVID hit, and we already had thousands mm. because we'd spent 10 years asking people if they would give us their email. Mm for newsletters and one of the other things I think as well is that when we set up the the meal kits Sophia set it up so that all the instructions are digital so that when you buy a meal kit it's digitally sent and we had all that in place because she'd set it up that all the instructions would be a digital delivery 
And actually, everything we've done, we when we first started, we went to a, a talk with Michelle Moan, and it's very true what she said. Actually, use your constraints to your advantage. So because we were a small family business, we didn't have massive budgets. So the reason we made our product half digital was because we went to the printers and we said, how much does it cost for black and white versus color? And they're like, if you want one image, it was like 10 times the price. And we thought, this isn't best for our customers. We need to make it better for them. And the only way we can do that is an email that doesn't limit anything we can you know if they want to make their paneer from scratch rather than buy it we can link our blog and video on our website so it all it came from a place of needing to be resourceful and trying to give our best to the customer with the budgets that we had so Mm. yeah that links to our final question really is is what would be your top tip for any business leader having worked with family and that you might say being resourceful might be one of those, but any anything else that you can think of that would be a headline tip that might help others listening to this today? For me, it's data. Mm. I was just about to say data is king, and that's what you've, you've learned. And we did it from the beginning, even when we didn't realise how crucial it would be. We did it from the beginning to stay connected with our customers. So I think Mm. data, but not using data in a nasty way, No, not to spam your people or bombard them with with sales things. I think more to be able to always stay in contact and and connected with them. Mm. And email is is still the best way. Um, And obviously people don't want that. They can can remove themselves at any time. But I would say definitely data and any kind of technology, learning the technology that you, you can, I'd maybe just add on that in in the contact with the customer, maybe. From day one, from our first cookery workshop and our first pop-up restaurant, we've always given every single person a feedback form. Yeah. Consequently, we have not in a boastful way, we've always had good feedback because from the very beginning, we always said to people, we need to know what works and what needs to be tweaked. So it was never coming from a place of like, please don't criticize us because we don't want to hear it. It was always like, whatever we can do to make it better, please tell us. And I think because we've always had that approach, any tiny thing that might have been a nothing, but if you it wasn't brought to your attention, could become bigger, was nipped in the bud along the way. Consequently, our customers have always been amazing at, at giving reviews and needing feedback. And again, that was something that really sort of supported us during the lockdowns when, you know, digital became so important because we then, you know, said to customers, if you can give a review, please do. And before we could even say anything to our wedding customers on Saturday, the bride said, everything was amazing. Please, can I leave an online review for you? That, so they they see that and then it perpetuates itself. So, you know, whenever they've, you know, we've not known what to do, we've said, what what would you like? Or they've said, can you do this? Yes. So just interact heavily with your customer because they'll lead you to kind of your golden nuggets and as long as it's viable and as long as you can put it together properly then do it and I think probably another thing would be asking for help Mm. I think we've always asked for help yeah you know with COVID I'm about to send another (laughs) newsletter actually for something that we've got coming up uh, where we're going to struggle and I'm about to send out a newsletter just to, to the customers just saying if anybody can help in this particular area come and have a free stay with us or something or some kind of nice reward that you might enjoy or like if you're able to to actually help us with a couple of things that we really desperately need some help with so I think those yeah maybe your team as well yeah and treating people well Mm. treating everybody well Mm. I think is is pretty key the recruits we're having now are are the lockdown kids so obviously their so their social skills are maybe not as as polished as they should be and um just even yesterday we were saying to them listen We've stressed the importance of the customer having a great welcome when they come in. But if you walk into work and you don't say hello when you come in the kitchen, it needs to be everywhere. You need to talk to each other within the team nicely. You need to talk nicely to management. You need to talk nicely to the customer because if it's happening in one area and not the other, that's not okay. You need to Mm. work across and everybody looks after each other and then it just creates that environment where everybody's caring. Mm. I'm a big champion at the moment of giving our young people who hadn't got the experience that they would have done with two years of socialising, that employers really need to give them a chance and show them the way and not have 
unrealistic expectations of them. And it sounds great that you've sort of thought around what their limitations are likely to be for no fault of their own, that you're, you're giving them that spoon fed feedback of this is what's expected of you. And I, I think the more employers that do that at the moment, they're going to be able to play catch up quicker than otherwise and, and hope employers give them the chance. Thank you both for being on the podcast today. It's been so lovely to hear your story and I'm sure your customers, future customers and all of our other listeners will love hearing your story and getting to know you both a little bit better. I know I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been great. We've covered some new ground today, so that's fantastic. And uh, you're both loving working together. You can tell it's uh, it's great. Um, and thank you. I think we could carry on talking for hours, couldn't we? There's so much uh, scope of, of opportunity around all the, the breadth of work that you're doing. So it's exciting. So we'll we'll need to come and sample your your new pub or or your products very soon because it sounds like you've got a really good all-rounded business so huge congratulations and good luck for the future thank you thank you for having us i can't help but think sarinda and sophia have more hours in the day than i do relentlessly looking for opportunities while diligently listening to customer demand these ladies really leave no stone unturned Their ability to pivot, make quick decisions, respond with just the right tone of voice is admirable. And it all comes from that place which we so often reference in this podcast, from the heart of their own family values and just doing the right thing. The future looks rosy indeed for pure Punjabi. The opportunities and doors continue to open and with their ability to support each other as dynamic women in their own right, over and above their roles as mother and daughter, the world is very much their oyster. If you met these women, unaware of their personal relationship, it's hard to tell if you'd suss it or not. They're evidently excellent business people and business partners, but that sense of mother and daughter does seep through in the most organic and endearing ways. Thank you for listening to this episode of It Runs in the Family. If you enjoyed this, you should know what to do. Hit subscribe and follow the journey along. Music.